health sector, we view the human body or, or within the health community, we view the human body as a whole system. And that's the way we want to see climate change tackled. We can't do this one, one sector or one body part at a time. We want to see a multi-portfolio cross-government approach to tackling climate change. So that's why we're putting forward a comprehensive climate plan. That's the founder and executive director of the Climate and Health Alliance, Fiona Armstrong. Fiona was one of several people who assembled on the stage at the end of the Better Futures Australia Forum to sum up the two days. This is the latest episode of Climate Conversations and I'm your host, Robert McLean. Climate Conversations is assembled here in Shepparton, in Northern Victoria, Australia, on the lands of the Yorta Yorta people. Yes, the stolen lands of the Yorta Yorta people, and I pay my respects to elders, past, present and emerging. First we hear from one of the two MCs, Dan Illick, and then we get on to hearing from the several people who summed up the two days of the forum. Fantastic. This is our assembly. We're going to uh, do a quick rap. All right. Can you guys rhyme? Because we're going to do a rap. Is that, is that something? No, no. Uncle Ray's going to sing later, so we'll save that for later. All right, so uh, we've got the microphones. Yeah, come on, let's start down here. Um, first of all, I want you to introduce yourself. Tell us why you're here. What, who, who's your working group or who are your stakeholders? And tell us the key opportunities, challenges and actions you identified. All right, go for it, go. Sure, thank you, Dan. Uh, I'm Fiona Armstrong. I'm the founder and strategic projects director at Climate and Health Alliance. So we have the pleasure of working with health groups from many different disciplines, healthcare service providers, research and academic institutions. We've been talking with policymakers. Um, in the health sector, we view the human body, or, or within the health community, we view the human body as a whole system. And that's the way we want to see climate change tackled. We can't do this one, one sector or one body part at a time. We want to see a multi-portfolio, cross-government approach to tackling climate change. So that's why we're putting forward a comprehensive climate plan. That means that we will consider the health implications of climate policy policy that we develop in every sector, energy, environment, transport, etc. So we're calling for a multi-portfolio ministerial forum to guide the implementation of a national strategy on climate health and wellbeing for Australia. We want a national climate adaptation assessment to understand where vulnerable communities are and um, so that we know where to direct policy and investment. We want an economic analysis of the health benefits associated with carefully designed climate policies. And we want to see First Nations knowledge and wisdom put at the heart of climate change and health decisions. We also want a sustainable development unit to guide decarbonisation of healthcare. That's just a snapshot. Fantastic. Round of applause for Fiona. That's great. All right. Lara. Hi. So I'm Lara Panchkov. I'm Growth and Market Development Manager at Fluence. So Fluence is a global provider of storage technology across lots of different countries. And I'm from a team of global power market analysts. And we look at different energy markets and we try and figure out where can storage add the most value to the power grid and help it decarbonise the electricity sector the most. So over these last two days, we've been doing a lot of deep thinking of what is the role of storage for emissions reduction? So how can we add the most renewable energy possible in a safe, stable and low cost way? So we thought through things like what are the policy gaps we have at the moment 
and what is the role of the government right now with the resources we have at hand. So we thought through three different things that we're going to take forward. So one is working with the Clean Energy Finance Corporation and NAITH, the Northern Australia Infrastructure Fund, to see where we can deploy more debt financing right now to energy storage projects. Number two is working with state governments uh, to de-risk procurement of storage, to take a little bit of risk out of the market revenue, to make sure projects that are almost about to happen can happen faster. And then three, thinking through a broader, longer-term mechanism that we're calling a renewable energy storage target. So using what we did to encourage renewable energy projects called the RET, or the Renewable Energy Target, trying to figure out how we can adapt that to storage, to really enable more and more renewables. Fantastic. Thanks. Ret to rest. All right. Fantastic, Lara. That was great. Very good. Uh, now, these two were great. They were like under, under two minutes. Everyone else has got laptops. The whole internet's connected. I don't know what they're going to be doing. Hopefully, they don't read Wikipedia. Go for it. Introduce yourself. Kick it off. Do. Hi, everyone. I'm Selena Garcia. I'm with Climate Work Centre, which is part of Monash University Sustainable Development Institute. I'm here because I work on issues around land use and climate change. And over the last few days, I've been helping to co-convene discussions around the role of nature in achieving net zero. A couple of themes that came out of the conversations we've been having with a range of people working across different parts of the land use sector really highlighted the importance of Indigenous peoples and a really embedding First Nations perspectives when we think about nature-based solutions around land use issues and the real uh, link between trying to reconcile uh, past grievances and contemporary grievances and thinking about land use issues and the need to really honour the right to self-autonomy for Indigenous peoples when we're thinking about climate change issues as they relate to land use. A second thing that we really talked about was around carbon markets and the role they will have in shaping the future of land use, but also some caution around not over-relying on the market to provide the solution to all of the aspects of the land use and nature uh, discussions that we talked about, and particularly really trying to avoid the perverse outcomes that come from thinking about either climate or nature goals as uh, separate from one another. And the third area that we talked about was really needing to get into much more deeper and coordinated action from government in, in conversation with First Nations peoples, with civil society, with academia and with the land use sector to really unpack some of the issues and really get to a more uh, nuanced understanding of the role of nature-based solutions in our climate emissions reduction strategies. Great, thank you, Selena. Yeah, round of applause. <laughs> All right, Laura. Hi, my name's Laura Symes. I'm also with the Climate Works Centre. I am 50% of the Perth office of the Climate Works Centre, and I am broadly working in industry decarbonisation policy. Uh, for the last two days at this session and yesterday's session, we were talking about the opportunities that decarbonisation of industry can offer. Um, we had a second session, which was um, headed by Warwick, and I believe he's gone now. So I'm going to try and roll them both together because we consolidated it um, into one group today. But um, broadly, both sessions um, ended up really coalescing around the massive potential for um, decarbonising clustered regions, so um, bringing renewable energy into those clustered industrial regions or having renewable energy on site. Um, the types of things, given that this is a very kind of localised um, action, the types of things that we saw that the federal government um, could do to help to accelerate that were um, that, so support isn't just about grants, 
government procurement power is a substantial, and if, if you um, apply certain kind of um, criteria to government procurement, such as carbon content and local sourcing, that can have a transformative impact on the way that new, innovative new low-carbon materials um, can come into the market and become commercial. Uh, and secondly, that early signals unleash creativity. So by setting um, an emissions reduction target and doing those um, regional decarbonisation roadmaps, you provide a clear signal that everyone can rally around. Yes, great. Let's provide those signals. <laughs> well done. Thank you. You know, people, people, they rubbish virtue signalling. I call it leadership. I don't know what people are talking about. James. Thank you, Dan. Am I able to bring up the slide that I'd like to James use? James has a transport slide. It's, uh, it's really groovy. Hopefully. Um, I'm sure it doesn't have a lot of text well, on it. I'm sure it's uh, just a picture um, with one word. James Whelan. I work with uh, Climate Action Network Australia um, and Across the Better Futures program, uh, bringing together various stakeholders around transport initiatives. It's been a terrific two-session discussion around transport. Really pleased to have folks from Lease Express in the room, Tesla, uh, various community groups across the country, um, and others. We started with Audrey Quick from the Australia Institute, a policy uh, researcher around climate and energy who leads their transport work at the Australia Institute, introduced us to a, a framework that was useful for the next two hours of discussion. It's a hierarchy that suggests that you should avoid carbon-intensive transport first as the, the, the first place to start with your policy interventions before then shifting and improving, and that the hierarchy should go in that order. Um, we found, though, um, that uh, our thinking went to the improve, and we spent quite a bit of time in how to reduce emissions across the, the way that Australians currently uh, get around in our cities and towns, um, and less uh, attention, somewhat less, to the shifting, uh, modal shift, to, to get people out of relying so much on their private motor vehicles. And avoiding was the, the, the real challenge. How do you avoid... Um, and I want to start there on avoiding. We, we see a major obstacle is the siloing, uh, the, the segmentation of different parts of government uh, and where if we had more connected up government and integration between urban planning, let's say, and transport planning, we could see fewer people in transport disadvantaged situations. And there were some case studies that were shared in great detail where um, there's absolute reliance on cars in families and households where there's um, minimal cho choice around that, very poorly served by public transport or active transport. The big ticket item, I think, where, where a lot of our attention went was to a major redirection of um, transport funding, where currently less than 5% of transport funding nationally goes to active and public transport. The Climate Council, who are not here with us, but who prior to the election advocated 70% of all transport budgets should go to active and public transport. That's where our group was really unleashed in terms of creativity, just all the great things that could be done in a fair, fast and inclusive or equitable way to get people tra get travelling in uh, very different ways, lower carbon transport. Awesome. Thank you, James. Great. I really regret not bringing my bike to Canberra to get here. All right, Andrew. Thank you, Dan. So, Andrew Peterson, uh, CEO of the Business Council for Sustainable Development and also the co-chair of the Corporate Finance Task Force of the BFA. Um, I am here actually in one of three roles, um, can't you tell? 
the uh, trinity of Serena Stewart and Melissa Edwards from the UTS Business School who co-hosted the um, sector workshop yesterday on the sexy title of how businesses are reducing emissions and decarbonising supply chains. What was interesting about the session is how poorly attended it was, um, at least in person. So shame on you people, because what's interesting about the session is that it is a very international conversation that is going on about that particular issue because of that thing called Scope 3. And when you look at that particular issue, the, the conversation very oriented, obviously, towards the production obligations around Scope 3 emissions, but where's the conversation around the consumer? And that was one of the key call-outs that we had, that there wasn't in the room that voice of the consumer, although, ironically, we were all consumers in the room. So one of the challenges is, well, how do you engage from um, an educative point of view to a country around the obligation that you have, we all have, as consumers in relation to our own Scope 3 emissions? And particularly because the emissions of a large number of products and services and technologies that we access on a daily basis comes not just from Australia, but also offshore. And that in itself is a real challenge for this country because of its geography, less so its demography. So the, just to reiterate, the, the purpose of the session was around how to understand how to accelerate towards net zero um, in the supply chain through business collaboration and how is that possible in a country where we are quite, in very many sectors, duopolistic. So how do you have a pre-competitive discussion around the sharing of information in relation to Scope 3 emissions when we can't even have a, a fascinating conversation around Scope 1 or Scope 2 without um, the ACCC getting very heady? So what we came up with was, um, in addition to the need for um, a broader conversation that we think that the Australian government should be having, having with the Australian community around its responsibility in relation to Scope 3, there were three very specific call-outs. The first was the business would very much like to see some methodolo methodological standards and incentives for calculating, um, exchanging and displaying environmental data. Because if we don't do that, how do we inform the consumer about what their own responsibility is? The second is, is there an opportunity around a, a sort of an internationalisation of guidelines for production of environmentally responsible products? It's happened in certain sectors, it's certainly certified in some, but can you have it as some sort of international um, conversation? And we think that's possible. And the third was, how do you go about getting an, a government uh, to invest in research to achieve successful digitalisation for a green economy. Because we think that if you talk about digitalisation in this country, you can't not talk about the green economy at the same time. They're our three things. Thank you very much. Back to Dan. Thank you, Andrew. Very unlike business to put the onus of Scope 3 on the consumer. That's very, un very unlike. All right, let's move on. <laughs> Carl? Uh, Sorry, <laughs> Cam. Thanks, Dan. Uh, Cam Crawford, the Energy Transition Manager for WWF Australia. Um, firstly, a huge shout-out to Hilly Montague from ACF and Phil Freeman from WWF who also helped facilitate this session and the great team that was in the room and online that contributed to these points that I'm probably going to butcher on your behalf. I'm very sorry, but no, I'll give it a shot. And I think there's a pretty strong theme with some of the other uh, points that have been made too around the importance of coordination. 
Um, we're also, I have the pleasure too that, uh, or I guess I'm fortunate in that I'm following on from the Sunshot discussion that was this morning as well, which covered a lot of this in a lot more detail with some incredible minds that have sat behind that work to pull all of it together. But really, I guess just to summarise again what they said this morning, um, the need for a coordinated export strategy that actually draws across multiple portfolios in government, um, particularly from climate change, trade, energy, infrastructure and regional development. Um, and that really you know, builds into this idea of place-based renewable energy precincts being one of the key enablers that sits underneath that to underpin the opportunity that that presents. Um, and uh, working with the safeguards mechanism uh, as a market signal for investment to also trigger the investment required in those, in those precincts. Uh, shaping up procurement, again, that seems to be another um, theme that's come through um, with government and related contracting in this space. And also not forgetting our role in the region, the Asia-Pacific, and the opportunity that we have to help our neighbours uh, with this energy transformation. Um, yes, it was the Sunshot Renewable Energy Export Group, uh, strategy group, um, but it was also, I think, sort of tagged as the Simon Curry Make Australia Make Again group. <laughs> thank you. Great, thank you. That was great. Uh, Alexi. Local governments. Thank you. Um, I'm filling in for William Chan, who jumped into the local government working group sessions today and yesterday at the last minute and did an amazing job. Um, we, I'm speaking on behalf of, we've got a big crew here who are also online as well. Uh, Kathy, <coughs> Chris, Darcy, Jack, Portia, I'm sure there are others I'm missing, but we had a great session yesterday and a great session today. The gist of where we got to was... Um, we believe that local governments can be the secret weapon to help the feds meet their targets and to help us all tackle climate change. It was an interesting thing to hear um, David Pocock yesterday say that I think if you add up all the state targets, they hit 42% of the 43% 2030 um, target, and so there's really not much more for the feds to do. Similarly with local government, there's 530-odd councils around Australia, and if you just take 60 of those targets, we're over halfway to the 43% target as well. So we think there's a mandate there for local governments, and there's a lot of work that's been going on for quite a while. We, um, as most people will know, the Paris Agreement not only sets out a um, need to get to two and one and a half degrees, but also recognises and acknowledges the roles of subnational governments when it comes to the negotiations. And so the first thing we want from the feds is to recognise the contributions and the ambition of local government within their nationally determined contributions. So we can actually feed up to that and have a say. The second thing is a partnership, similar to what some of these guys were saying, a bit like an accord to reset the relationship. There hasn't really been a relationship for the last 10 years, <laughs> but a way to actually make sure that we can have some vertical integration between the three layers of government and we can align at the very start, you know, here are the priorities of local government. Potentially there can be working groups that come out of that around transport or coastal inundation or regulatory reform or whatever it might be. Some really interesting comments as well from the audience today talking about horizontal integration, so making sure that we've got that across a council and across the different federal agencies. And finally, we want funding to implement that accord and most importantly to understand what the real costs of 
resilience and adaptation are going to be. At the moment, money gets thrown around. Local government want X million for this and X hundred million to tackle climate change. But we want a piece of work where we work with academia, local, federal, the people that were on the panels today, they're the first people we'll invite, to actually try and understand what is that evidence-based cost on a regional, um, a regional level. So we would have loved to have had more federal government um, people in the audience today. We had zero. Um, but luckily, we had a. Um, the, the minister told us that he'd be happy to catch up with us before he was the minister a couple of months ago. So we're going to be knocking on his door every day to say, hold, hold you to the promise. Get in there, get in there. Thank you, Alexi. And thanks, everybody up here. Thank you so much. That was very inspiring. It was very good. You guys can, you guys can go back down. Yes, a truly wonderful forum with some great ideas and some really progressive thinking. I just hope somebody somewhere can pull it all together and make some sense of it all. I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. That wraps up this episode of Climate Conversations. Thanks so much for your company. And until we meet again, please take care, stay safe, and please be kind. For everyone you meet is fighting a great battle. And please, if you enjoyed this episode, I implore you to share it with your friends. So until we talk again, take care.